Well, we have worked our way through the entire book of Revelation. 22 chapters, 404 verses, 45 sermons, which fill about 200 pages of written material. I think it was, for me, the most difficult series I've ever prepared for, but also tremendously rewarding. I hope it's been a blessing to you as well, and I thank you for your attentiveness and your persistence. Last week we began the final passage in the book of Revelation and in the New Testament. I said that it had two main themes which we would cover one week at a time. So last week we addressed the first theme, the fact that Jesus Jesus promises that he will come again soon. Today we're going to address the second theme, which has to do with this book as a whole and our response to it. The title of the sermon is Keep These Words. Let's read together. Revelation 22, 6 to 21. It's John speaking, and he's talking about the angel speaking to him. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, of this book, of the book of this prophecy, 
God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Now, today we're going to begin with two lessons that are in this passage about the Word of God, followed by two questions, answers to two questions about verses 10 and 11, followed by an explanation of verses 18 and 19, and ending with a final word about this amazing book that we've been studying. So first, two lessons about the Word of God. The first about the New Testament. Revelation 22.6 says, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Some suggest that the New Testament writers did not realize they were writing New Testament scriptures when they wrote. They didn't even realize there was going to be a New Testament. I believe this is based on a faulty interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7, 10-12. And I don't see any reason to come to this conclusion. Many New Testament books have explicit statements which make it clear that the author of that book believed that he was writing the very word of God, including 1 Corinthians where that passage is found. But Revelation is perhaps the clearest of all. Over and over again, from the beginning of the book to the very end, the fact that this was to be written down as the Word of God is made explicit. For instance, in verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. Later in verse 6, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. In verse 18, I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. These verses and many others in the book of Revelation show that this is clearly the written word of God and it was that way from the start and John knew it. In fact, I think this may be the reason why this strange thing is included in verse 8 about John falling down to worship the angel. It reaffirms how holy and how divine these words are and these visions. These words and visions are so divine that godly and knowledgeable men struggle to hold themselves back from worshiping the angel who communicates these words to them. Even though the word 
is passed from God to Jesus to an angel to John and finally to us. God wants us to receive the words as if they came straight from him. We don't see the visions, of course, like John saw them. But we still experience the visions through John's inspired record of them. This indicates how highly we ought to esteem the word of God. God's word is so heavenly that our temptation when we hear it ought to be to worship the messenger. Or at least to think that his feet are beautiful. This word ought to make our knees buckle. It is better than much fine gold. That's the way a discerning man reacts when God speaks. Now, the second lesson about the word of God has to do with keeping the words of this book in verse 7. It says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy What does it mean to keep the words of this book? This book is not a book of law. It's not like Deuteronomy, which means second law, which was the second time Moses gave the law to the people and is filled with exhortations like this one to keep the words of this book, of this law. But this book is completely different. There's very little law in this book. And the law which we do find here is usually just a brief reference to the law found elsewhere in Scripture. No, the concept of keeping the word of this book is different than that. When it talks about keeping these words, it's referring to heeding these words. Letting these words sink deep into our minds and our hearts and our lives. By and large, the book of Revelation is about who God is. And why things are the way they are in this world. And where things are headed in the future. And here it says to us that those who remember the glory of God. Remember his purposes in this present distress. Remember his imminent return and triumph. And his judgment of the wicked and his rewarding of the overcomers. That they will be blessed. Of course the vast majority of people in our society have a very mistaken interpretation of what's going on and why. And what's going to happen in the future. And this book is given to us so that our thinking will not be conformed to the way the world thinks about these things. Let me illustrate. Here are three popular secular eschatologies in our day. Number one, we are evolving to be better and better so that one day there will be no more war No more sickness. No more poverty. Number two. If we don't urgently and immediately stop the way that we're living, we're going to drive this planet irreparably into the ground such that virtually all human life will cease to exist on earth. 
Number three, it's already too late. Even if we could change, it would be too little too late. And besides, there's nothing to live for. We're all going to die. And the planet is already doomed. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we won't be here. We're surrounded by many who buy into these kinds of ways of thinking. But God doesn't want us to think according to man. He wants us to think according to what he tells us. And he knows what's going to happen. And he knows why things are the way they are. And he's the only one who knows. And he wants us to base our thinking and our life, our living on what he says. Not on what the world around us says. So each of us is faced with this question. Who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what I want to be true? Am I going to believe what the crowd around me says is true or thinks is true? Am I going to believe some scientists and what they think is true? Or am I going to believe what God says in his word? That's our choice. And choices have consequences. And one day each of us is going to face up to our choices. The Bible talks a lot about those who don't heed God's word. For instance, Jesus compared those who hear God's word but don't heed God's word to a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Everything is fine. He's living a life of vacation until the storm comes and the winds blow and the house falls down and great is its fall in Matthew 7 this shows us that our interest in revelation must not be primarily academic we are to not only understand revelation but we are to heed revelation God did not inspire this book merely to give us information. It is here to arrest us, to stop us in our tracks. It is here to confront us and to send us in a different direction. And if we are able to go through the book of Revelation and not be changed in the way that we see things, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we view God, We've missed the whole point. All this is here to impact us. We keep the words of this book, for instance, by not being overwhelmed by the darkness that's around us. Even when others are overwhelmed. Because we know that the morning star has already appeared brightly in the heavens. Signaling the imminent dawn of day. We keep the words of this book to give another example. During times of societal optimism, which isn't really happening right now, but there are times like that. During times of societal optimism and prosperity, we keep the words of this book by holding ourselves back from thinking that 
it's now day. That satisfaction can be found in this world. That this is our home. When yet it is so dark that the morning star still, still, the morning star still appears brightly in the darkness. And now two questions. Two strange things that are set, said in this section that I'd like to address. Number one is in verse 10, where John is told to seal up the words of this book. I'm sorry. He's told not to seal up the words of this book. What in the world does that mean? Well, you can't really understand what this means without reference to things that are said to some of the Old Testament prophets, in particular Daniel, and especially in verse 12:4, where he was told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So Daniel was given a prophecy about the rise and the fall of evil kingdoms of the world and the final triumph of God's kingdom. But Daniel had no idea how or when it was going to be fulfilled, though he knew it wasn't going to be fulfilled in his own day. So he was told to seal up this message. And that meant that its prophecies were not to be understood or come to pass until a later time in history. However, now with the coming of Christ, that later time period, what is called in the Bible the latter days, has begun. So it's now time for the meaning of these prophecies to begin to be understood. Meaning, what was hidden in the Old Testament is now being revealed through Christ and his apostles as it says in Ephesians 3 verse 4 and 5 when the angel tells John not to seal up the words of this book then he is telling him not to keep this message hidden but to shout it from the housetops and then the second strange thing that needs explanation is in verse 11 where John is told to let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy obviously this verse has stirred up much confusion right after John is told to spread the word he is told to let sinners keep sinning. Now it may sound strange at first, but think about it. The Bible doesn't call the righteous, I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't call the unrighteous to be righteous or to do righteousness. The unrighteous cannot do righteousness. No, the Bible calls unrighteous people to repent and turn to the Lord. And if they do so, they will become righteous. And then, and only then, will they do righteousness. It seems to me that this verse actually helps us understand the mission of those who, whose names are written in the book of life. Those who have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb while they're living this life here on earth. 
We are not here to try to reform society. Evil mankind will continue to do evil no matter what we do. It's not our job to try to stop them. Now, I'm not saying that repentance is what is in mind in this passage either, but it's clear that whoever is unrighteous is going to do and continue to do unrighteousness. Sinners sin. That's what they do. And our job is not to try to get them to stop sinning. Our job is to tell them the good news of Christ and call them to repent, call them to come to Christ, and as a result, some who are evil will become righteous in Christ, and then once they are righteous, they ought to do right. And now, verse 18 and 19. John says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Very strong words. Now these words, you know, there's a big debate about whether these words are written about the book of Revelation or whether here they found at the very end of the, the Bible they're written about the whole Bible. Well, in my opinion, that's sort of a silly argument because um, obviously they're written primarily about the book of Revelation, but there is no reason why these words would be said about Revelation if they weren't also true about the rest of the Bible. So even if it's a secondary meaning, it clearly refers to the whole Bible as well. And the point is that there is a line of demarcation between God's words and the words of men. But sometimes we feel so convinced about things that we believe or things that other people say that we're tempted to promote them to become part of the word of God. And sometimes we're so troubled by things that are in God's word that we're tempted to erase them even if only by ignoring them and by pretending that they're not there. And different cultures are they are they see different things and are blind to different things. In the Christianity of one culture for instance You hear a lot about this, but hardly ever hear about that. And in the Christianity of another culture, you hear a lot about that, but hardly ever about this. In the areas we feel strongly about, we're tempted to add to the Word of God. For instance, it's not enough that the Bible warns against drunkenness. We need to make it forbid drinking altogether and find some way that the Bible can say that. And in areas we're embarrassed about, we're tempted to subtract from the Word of God. For instance, pastor and author Joel Osteen avoids any reference to hell or to the wrath of God and does so 
subconsciously and admits it. And Dave Ramsey, the Christian money expert, never talks about the main thing the Bible says about money. Namely, that loving it is sinful and dangerous. When you study church history, it is astounding the things which in some context or period of time were considered acceptable or considered unacceptable in the Christian community. And this is why we must come to grips with the fact that we have a Bible. It is God's word and what, what the church believes must always be examined according to what the Bible says. Man's words can be helpful. They can even help us to understand God's word. But we must never blur the line between God's word and everyone else's words. So it is the job of every believer in every culture, in every generation, to be on guard against selective attention. Every one of us lives in a context where Christians around us are alert to some things in God's word and oblivious to others. And it's unacceptable just to go along with the crowd which adds to and or takes away from the word of God. But we should be always agents of correction in our own hearts and in our community. And now, dear friends, we have reached the end. In this book, God has sent a message about why the world is dark and torn and about the judgment day which is coming. And the message is trustworthy and true and a blessing to any who heed it. Some of you remember 19 years ago this week a disastrous tsunami hit in Indonesia which claimed over 200,000 lives in communities along the coasts of the Indian Ocean. And you might have heard about the one beach in Thailand which had no casualties in it. And the 11-year-old British girl with her parents on vacation who saved them all. Her name was Tilly. But on that day she became known as the Angel of the Beach. You see, on that day Tilly noticed the sea behaving in a strange way. Just as she had recently learned in geography class about what happens right before a tsunami. She tried to raise the alarm, but her parents didn't believe her at first. Then she got hysterical, started screaming, even threatening to leave her parents and go back by herself to the hotel. Finally, her parents sheepishly told the security guard, Fortunately, an English-speaking Japanese man was nearby and overheard the girl 
mentioned the Japanese word tsunami and chimed in that he had just heard on the news that there had been an earthquake in Sumatra. So they evacuated the, the beach and got everybody onto the second story of a nearby hotel just moments before the 30-foot tsunami smashed into the beach, demolishing the surrounding area. And everyone was saved. But Tilly didn't come ordering everyone to get off the beach. Tilly merely informed them about the coming tsunami. And the people were blessed because they heeded her words. Brothers and sisters, in the book of Revelation, God has graciously sent his angel to warn us that there's a much bigger tsunami coming. And that he has provided a place of escape. And only those who heed the warning will be spared. And the one who sent this message has asked that those who heed this message spread it to everyone else on the beach who need to know that the tsunami is coming. Though not everyone on the beach wants to hear it. The time is near. In fact, the time is 2,000 years less than it was when these words were first spoken. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is the tsunami. And Jesus is the shelter. Some find death fleeing from him. Others find life fleeing to him. Let us pray. O oh Lord, this year, as we've gone through these things revealed in your word, it's been disturbing. It's been shocking. It's been uncomfortable at times. We think of those uh, beachgoers who are enjoying a nice day at the beach 19 years ago this week. And how they were completely unaware of what was about to hit them. Until this message came that they were to flee the wrath of the tsunami which was coming. Dear Lord, we know that this is coming, that this much greater tsunami is coming here, though we don't know when. And we thank you for your graciousness in sending us this message. And dear Lord, we know that it's not a time to cling to our rest, our vacation, our play, our sun bathing. But it's time to run and flee. And we thank you that you have provided a place for us, a great city into which we can flee 
whose walls are so strong that we are perfectly safe there. Lord, don't let us go out of this place today without feeling the urgency that is appropriate for people who hear such a message as what we hear in your word. Wake us up, Lord. Shake us. Do whatever you need to do that we might be alert to you and to the wrath we deserve because of our sinfulness and that we might take hold of Christ who is such a great anchor and such a great hiding place that no storm can shake us free. Thank you that nothing can separate us from his love, from the love of Christ. Thank you, O Lord, that his love never fails. Thank you that nothing can snatch us away from your hand. Help us to flee there and hide there. And now thank you, O Lord, for the chance to come to the table that Jesus instituted for us. To feed upon him as we finish our journey. We've been now through another year, dear Lord, and we don't know how many more we have. But every day, every day, every hour, every minute, we need you. We can't do this on our own. So we come to Jesus for his strength and his refreshment. And for the reminder that he is with us as we run, as we fight, as we struggle. We pray in his precious name. Amen.